Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the founder and editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode of Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast. And today, I'm very happy to say we have Grant Faulkner on the show. And if you stick with us, eventually we will talk about Grant's book, All the Comfort Sin Can Provide. But Grant has done a lot of really interesting things, and I want to talk to him about those. So you'll have to listen to that, too, before we get to the book. Grant, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Marshall. I look forward to the conversation. So uh, this is a Grinnell College podcast, and you have an association with Grinnell College. Uh, How did you get to Grinnell College? I took a strange path from uh, Oskaloosa, Iowa, which is about 40 miles away to Grinnell. I was actually voted most likely to move furthest away from my hometown (laughs) in high school. (laughs) And so it was kind of unlikely for me to go to Grinnell. But there was a a Grinnell uh, grad who in my hometown who I encountered in the library there and kind of became friends with. And he told me, if you go to Grinnell, you won't really know you're in Iowa. You know, you'll, you'll feel like you're far away. And so when I checked out Grinnell, uh, back then you could like spend the weekend there. <laughs> it was kind of wonderful. So I, uh, yeah, went to a lot of great parties um, and saw some bands and I don't know, made, made really good friends. I always say it was just because uh, it was really just that weekend, you know, just feeling um, like it was a home for me that I, you know, met people I loved and that it was a, just a thriving intellectual place, which was what I was looking for. As it is. Um, what did you study while you were there? I was an English major. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, your story of getting to Grinnell is much like mine. I, I, I'm from Kansas, and I met somebody who had gone there. Ah. And they said, hey, check this out. Um, and I said, okay, I'll do that. And it was really um, the luckiest thing that has happened to me, or at least one of the luckiest things that has happened to me. I think so, too. The older I get, the luckier I feel to have gone there. Yeah, very, very fortunate. Really, really, yeah. I, I loved my time there. Yeah. And it really, it did totally change my life. And that's just the God's honest truth. Um, let's move on to your decision to become a writer. Uh, this is quite a big decision to make. It's, it's not an ordinary path, and it's a very risky path. So how did you decide to become a writer? Yeah, you know, it, uh, it didn't even feel like a decision, but I guess it was. Um, I felt very early on in life that I would, that's what I wanted to do. Um, when my mom lost me in the grocery store, she would find me kind of staring lovingly at the, the paper products and the pins. So I kind of <laughs> had a fetish for those, <clears throat> excuse me, from an early age. Um, but the, but the, cru- the decision part actually happened at Grinnell. And I was deciding between two majors that were wildly different, uh, whether to be an econ major or an English major. And, and very fortunately, I um, had a semester abroad in France where I basically spent the whole semester reading novels in cafes and, and thought this was a pretty good lifestyle. <laughs> so I, I didn't think of the decision to be a writer um, as so much as a risky one or, or, or jumping off the cliff. I kind of didn't know a cliff was there. People kept warning me about the cliff. Uh, you know, that's the funny thing about making the decision to be a writer is that everyone just kind of continually warns you about the perils ahead as if you, you know, don't have the smarts to know it, you know? So, so I knew the risk and I, I was 20 when I made that decision and I never looked back. I never questioned it. I never had a plan B. I structured my life in my twenties entirely around creating space to, to write and read. Yeah, that's great. I I think again, our experiences are similar when I was thinking about going to graduate school 
even some of my professors at Grinnell were like, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I do. And so I, I knew I was going to do it. And it, it wasn't really a matter of kind of weighing things. It, I, I knew I wanted to do it. Why do you think they questioned that? Because in some ways I thought our training at Grinnell was so geared towards, you know, well, I think it is, but I, I was lucky to have an advisor who was very realistic about the prospect of getting an academic job. And he said, look, th this will involve many years of your life and a lot of work, and it has a very uncertain outcome. Yeah. And I ignored all that. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, that's basically what I got over and over again. When I first, when I, you know, soon after I graduated from Grinnell, my parents, um, a friend of my parents, very close to them, he took me aside, very worried for me, my financial future, of course. And he said, he said, Grant, if I were you, I would study the five, like the five top best-selling books on the bestseller list right now and just read them over and over again and figure out a way to replicate them so that you can, you know, have a best-selling book as well. And this was like the, the opposite of what I wanted to do as a writer. Right. You know, I'm always yeah. like, if I wanted to, to create products and sell them, I wouldn't do it uh, by creating books. <laughs> um, yeah. And I was all about in, into it for, you know, other reasons. So, um, yeah, that was the last thing yeah. I would do. Again, another parallel. I mean, I, I decided to study early modern and medieval Russian history. Mark, very marketable. Do you know how many early modern <laughs> yeah, right, and medieval Russian historians there are paid historians in the United States? Probably about five. Yeah. So yeah. Well, you get one of those five spots, you're sitting pretty, right? Right. You're set. Yeah. No, you're, you're good, but it's tough to get those spots. Yeah. Um, so your day job, I, I'm going to say your day job is a writer, but you also work for the uh, National Novel Writing Month, if yep. I have that correctly. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the what is the National Novel Writing Month? What, what, tell us a little bit about its history and your role there. Yeah, it's also called NaNoWriMo, for those who might know that acronym. Uh, <laughs> it, it, gosh, I can go on and on about it, but the, the short story is that Chris Beatty founded it in 1999, and he really just wanted to write a novel, and he'd never taken any writing workshops or really read any how to write a novel books. And um, he looked over at his bookshelf and looked at volumes that were like Catcher in the Rye and estimated that they were about 50,000 words and figured out, hey, you can write 50,000 words in 30 days if you really set your mind to it. So he recruited 20 of his friends to join him. He's a very social guy. And this, you know, everything he did in that first NaNoWriMo, which wasn't really a NaNoWriMo, uh, we do today. That's what's interesting to me. So he and his friends met in cafes. Um, they wrote together. They believed in that, you know, spirit of, of creative collaboration. They made writing fun. They gave each other different uh, writing challenges and writing activities. And then, you know, the next year they said, hey, that was a worthwhile experience. And they came back and, and uh, 150 people showed up. And the year after that, they set up a janky website and 5,000 people showed up. And Chris Beatty wow. had to register each of them by hand. And then the year after that, you know, a bunch of publications like the L.A. Times and the New York Times were like, wow, 5,000 people are writing a novel in the United States. You know what? Imagine that. And then now we have about 500,000 people uh, writing novels in wow. our programs year round. And, and right now, since this is happening during November, about 400,000 people are, are writing this month. And so, so that is incredible. Yeah, just ahead. to give a little bit of shorthand, I think it's like two things, like based on that, it's like one part writing boot camp where you learn the discipline to write and you show up for 30 days to write 50,000 words. But one part of it is a big writing party, just like Chris started with his friends. And so we have a thousand volunteers who host writing gatherings around the world. And we have all sorts of ways to create community online as well. 
Well, I mean, this is great. I don't know what the official motto or mission of National Writing Month is, but it gets people involved in the arts who ordinarily wouldn't be involved in the arts. Exactly. Um, the motto is Your Story Matters. And so it is largely an invitation for people to, yeah, get involved in the arts, as you say. And I think like one thing that happens uh, is that as people become adults, creativity falls lower and lower on their lists until it's not on their mm-hmm. list at all. And there's that famous Picasso quote that it's easy to be an artist as a child, but it's, you know, challenging to be one as an adult. And so part of NaNoWriMo's benefit is just that invitation to make creativity a priority just for one month for 30 days. And then hopefully you will create momentum to weave it throughout your life uh, the rest of the year. Yeah. And I mean, it gets people writing and I, I kind of think writing is the best form of thinking. I, I can't really extemporize my thoughts if that's a good expression. I don't know. But when I start to write all kinds of things occur to me that never would have occurred to me in the course of just thinking to myself or talking to someone. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that because I, I, you know, I know I'm heavily biased towards writing just because that's what I do and that's what I'm immersed in and that's what I think about a lot. But I really do think that writing is the the primary uh, tool of critical thinking, you know, and writing in all forms. I agree. And there's yeah. something about language and that difficulty of, of finding the right way to express things. And while you're like having that challenge, you know, kind of going through all those those nuances and those counterpoints and those doubts. And yeah, there's just something about it that, it, you know, I just wish we had, you know, writing actually is very secondary in most uh, educational curriculum, unfortunately. So it's part of our mission to make it more primary. Um, and I think we will have better uh, people and a better society as a result if we could make it more primary. Well, I mean, I think it's empirically correct that it is a kind of higher form of thinking. Because yeah. if you think by analogy, for example, you would never try to do calculus in your head. I'm sure there's somebody that can do that. I'm going to hear from someone. <laughs> but you just wouldn't do it. You have to write all that stuff down. And then you end up with calculus. Yeah. And, and similarly with your thoughts. You have them. But you don't really know what they are until you interrogate them, and you interrogate them by writing them down. Exactly. And that's why I think the invitation, and it is just an invitation to make it a priority for a month. And we do hear of uh, life transformative stories in NaNoWriMo, partly just because they've also, they've done something more than they think they're capable of, you know, to write a novel is like climbing a mountain or, or running a marathon, you know? So Yeah, I, I, I you know, one of the things I often think about the New Books Network is I'm very grateful to be able to talk to these people who wrote these books because I know how hard it is. I've done it. Yeah. And it is an enormous sacrifice to spend 10 years researching something and writing and getting it all right. And then there's the whole publishing routine and all this other stuff. There's an enormous amount of effort that went into every one of these books. And I'm just very grateful to be able to talk to these people. It is, and most of it's for the for the love, the passion of it, you know. Uh, oh yeah, I, I yeah. Uh, I'm sort of charmed by every once in a while people think I'm I'm really wealthy because I've published books. <laughs> and, 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 and if I could if I could show them the financial statements, they would be completely yeah. shocked. And many of them, like the the friend of my parents who gave me that uh, advice years ago, you know, they'd be like, "Why are you doing this?" Uh, because money is what motivates most people. But um, writing books, uh, I, I actually I, I think this is true that most fiction writers at least uh, published fiction writers, they do not make minimum wage. They make less than minimum wage when it's all all done. I am virtually sure of that. Yeah. I, I don't know how, you know, given the amount of effort that goes into these books, that they could be making more than minimum wage. Yeah. 
but they produce beautiful things. And I, you know, I'll be a little bit autobiographical here for a second. I never really read fiction until I was about 50. Uh-huh, really? I was kind of a facts and data guy. Uh-huh. Um, and then I started to read novels. And I got to tell you, uh, I have the utmost respect for novelists. Um, it, it's pretty incredible what they do. Yeah. And Why do you and, say uh, that? Well, you know, like I, I have certain favorite, you know, like Infinite Jest is one of my favorite books, mm-hmm. and I, I've read it like four times, and and I just think of the amount of thought and effort and uh, perspective that went into that book, and I'm just, I'm just awestruck mm-hmm. <laughs> that somebody could create worlds like that. It's just a remarkable thing to be able to do. It's interesting because, like, yeah, in our in our educational curriculum, the trend right now is to privilege nonfiction, and I'm talking like K through twelve education uh, yeah. in public schools. And so, not like we, our society is more and more like leaning towards that that facts are what matter, you know. Yeah. And so, it's, so it's interesting to me to put fiction in question and and actually think about what does it provide you and it to, to me it obviously provides you something like very important you know it nourishes your thoughts in a very different way but it's hard to describe why that is and and i think like like you know humanities programs have basically dried up since i went to yeah. grinnell it's like it's shock, shocking how small they are now and i think like all of this attention to you know like technology and what can be quantified and data you know, I think we need more humanities majors in Silicon Valley, basically. I think... Uh, well, I think, yeah, recent events bear that out. Elon Musk could do a 100 books uh, program of some sort, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe we should call Elon and see if he'd like to support us in some yeah, way. You he might. I mean, in the guy, you can never tell what the guy's going to do. Yeah. But and to go back to your point about what it does, I mean, I've thought a lot about this. You know, what does it provide? And it really provides us with truth. And, and that's truth with a capital T about the human experience. Yeah. And, and, you know, even though it is fiction, like if you think about it, numbers, what are numbers exactly? Do they really exist? There's no numbers in the world. We create them. They're a kind of useful fiction. And similarly with, you know, you read uh, War and Peace or Anna Karenina or something like that, you're getting some truth with a capital T about the human experience. And that has to be valuable. Yeah, I think so. And I think it is. That is what it is. Truth with a capital T. Yeah, and I really think that's true. It, I, it is truth with a capital T. Yeah. Um, well, let's move on to another thing that you're kind of known for, and I know that you do, and that is 100-word stories. Can you tell us a, a little bit about your journey into 100-word stories and what they are? Yeah. Uh, for listeners' sake, you and I were, before the show started, we were talking about how random forces have kind of guided most of our lives, and that, that certainly goes for me in many ways. I, I When I was born, my eyes were swollen shut, and the nurses called me Mr. Magoo, and so I've always had a kinship with that, the fact that I'm just kind of walking around around half blind and and falling but kind of landing in the right places so you know for the most part and 100 word story i mean it was very random actually my uh one of my best friends from grinnell jake strome his father paul strome who was a very accomplished uh academic uh chaucerian uh he started writing these 100 word stories uh later in life and he wrote um 100 of them and made them into a memoir and one night I was on Facebook and I clicked over to one of them that he'd published or a series of them that he's published. And I, I just became uh, enchanted by them. And, and, and at the time I'd been working on this, you know, what I call my doomed novel. Uh, I'd been working on it for 10 years off and on. And I just kind of started doing these hundred word stories just for the fun of it and just to take a break. And it was interesting to me because I could, you know, 
I feel like writers are wired for different distances. You know, they're marathon runners who train themselves for the marathon and then they're sprinters and hundred word stories are much more in the sprint kind of metaphor than the marathon. So I would write a story that would end up being like 150 words. And I thought that was wonderfully done, you know, to get it down to that brevity. Um, and so I told Paul that, and he was like, no, 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 you've got to get them down to exactly 100 words and the stories will be better if they're a hundred words. And, and, and sure enough, I kept practicing, kept editing, kept trimming, finding places to trim away fat. And I think like writing these stories is a little bit like a Rubik's cube. You know, you, you, you add 10 or 15 words and then you have to subtract eight words. And then, you know what I mean? You're just kind of constantly going for that perfect 100 words. And I found that writing within a constraint brought out a different type of creativity and it was really fascinating to me like what types of stories i could capture through the hundred word lens which is like a fixed lens you can't zoom in on anything or zoom out and so um it just allowed me to do a different type of storytelling and for me it allowed me you know i think i've always been a frustrated poet and it allowed me to be um it's kind of my form of poetry essentially but it's but it's still within the kind of story genre and, and then I also, I, I liked it for the, the, the elliptical quality and the fragmentary quality that these stories have. Um, I think of them a lot like um, the old Kodak carousel um, slide things, you know, where you're, you're pressing a button and a new photo goes up every second or two. And, and that's the way these stories feel to me. They're, they're little snapshots that create this, this bigger collage. So, yeah, so I've been, you know, I, I, after writing a bunch of them with a friend, uh, this this now feels like the early days of the internet. It was like 2010, but we put together a uh, hundred word story. The magazine launched it in 2011. I decided that anything I do, I should commit five years to it to see if I can make it successful. So I committed five years and it's been very successful on the level of uh, thousands of people submitting us stories and we've published them and published a book and I published my own book as well. And where are they published? Is there a website? A hundred yep, word stories? hundred word story.org. Yep. Uh huh. Well, I mean, what you said has prompted a lot of thoughts. And one is, I learned this from an artist, and she said, constraints are your friend artistically. Absolutely. That's something that it really taught me. And um, yeah, you just, I mean, that's the thing about like flash fiction. I just wrote this book, The Art of Brevity, that's coming out in February. And I, I think flash fiction is defined as stories a thousand words or, or less. But within that, it's like it's like a, a bunch of Russian dolls. There are hundred word stories. There are all these different forms of fiction, six word stories, and so there are like all these different like little containers for stories or constraints that you have to work within. And each one of them just offers really interesting possibilities. And I think like flash fiction writers have been so inventive. Um, you know, they've explored that idea of the form. So some people I know, one guy who wrote. Um, complaint letters like that were a story I've uh, people have used like I, like I once wrote a story that was like in took the form of a comment section of a dance go clog um, <laughs> I've, I've heard heard like mad libs uh, dictionary entries you know you take all these forms of storytelling essentially in the world and then you apply them and, and transform them yeah well it reminds me of several kind of known genres one is zen cohen's i'm not sure that's the way you yeah, pronounce yeah. that but it's very short and kind of prompts the thought exactly i mean they never make any sense so the point is to kind of make sense out of them which is an in- interesting intellectual process uh and the other is i think about like the or like the biblical stories in the old testament or the hebrew bible the the first ones cain and abel 
they're very short. Yeah. Like they're astoundingly short. <laughs> they are. And I think if you look at most forms of human storytelling, like like if you transcribe a dinner party, most of the stories at that dinner party are probably going to be around 500 words. You know, not, yeah, not too yeah. many of them go on too long. So the short form is really kind of, I think, part of our storytelling psyche in a way. And it's interesting you mentioned the Zen Cohen because that's, I think the Zen Cohen offers a principle that I use in most of my fictional stories. And that's that they they speak through subtlety and they speak through uh, an amb yeah. ambiguity that you, as you said, they invite thought. And so I think that the weird thing about hundred word stories is that they it feels like you can dash off a story in just a few minutes, but it actually takes a long time to really work on that story and to make it speak the way you want it to speak uh, because you yeah. are using omission in a way that you're not using in longer work and you're, right. and you're, you're speaking through, through hints and suggestions. Right. That the present absence. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes called. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I do have kind of a personal connection to this. Yeah. And, and that is um, in 2011, I was going through a very rough spot in my life and I found myself with a ton of free time and I'm a historian by training and I was thinking about memory. And so I decided to write down everything that I remembered. Wow. Yeah. And this is the really interesting part that relates directly to hundred word stories. What I learned was when I searched my brain, it was full of anecdotes. Mm -hmm. It's all it was. It was just anecdotes one after another. Yeah. And so I spent like six months writing down all of these things that I remembered and they're all like little hundred words. None of them is long. None of them is near a page. Yeah. You know, it's all this happened and then this happened and this is the way I felt about it. And I was five and this happened and then this happened and I was seven. And so I think there's something about the way our brains work. Yeah. That is they work anecdotally. That was the exact reason that drew me. I mean, that's what drew me to the form, really, is that I felt like this form represented my memory better than other fictional forms. And and Paul's memoir of 100, 100 word stories, I thought that was the perfect way to tell the story of your life, because I think we do live through snapshots and a collage of those snapshots. And that, you know, other memoirs, you can construct them into this larger narrative with a rising narrative arc and all that and all the principles of storytelling. But I don't think our mind really works that way so much. No, I don't think our mind works that way at all, at least according to my little experiment. Yeah, what a because, great you experiment. Know, while I can remember you know, when like this happened, I don't remember what color the walls were when I was there or whether there was carpet or not. Yeah. I don't remember all a zillion details about it. I remember the kind of basic, I don't even want to use the word plot, anecdote right, points. Right, exactly. It's a, it's a, <laughs> when I use the word plot with these, I always say it's plotting, but with a slant. Um, and uh yeah. Well, Marshall, first I'm going to say, please submit some of your stories. Sounds like it's, and, and I think I think you've got to do something. I hope you're doing something with that six months of tracing through your memory. I mean, that sounds like a brilliant. Even even just writing a book about the six months could be could be yeah, interesting. It was it was a pretty interesting. I have it. I have it always going to give it to my kids. It's full of embarrassing things, so they'll know who their father was. Well, then then it's a true memoir, right? If it's full of embarrassing things. Oh, it's absolutely full yeah, of them. Yeah. yeah, because I tend to remember. I don't know. I maybe I don't think I'm unique here kind of traumatic things uh -huh. um you know I don't, I don't want to say i'm any victim of trauma i'm not but you know there were things that stuck in my memory and the yeah. things that stick in my memory tend to be 
moments of embarrassment. Sometimes they're moments of triumph. Yeah. Sometimes they're moments of joy. They're absolutely devoid, though, of details. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting what sticks in our memory because so much of our it's, our memory isn't a decision for the most part, right? Like it is, it's random and accidental, and yeah. I, and that's why I like the form too. Is that like with Paul's memoir and what I try to do in my stories? It's it's about those kind of tiny, subtle moments that won't likely won't make it into a larger story, but they get to be focused on in these small stories and they're just as meaningful as any kind of big experience. Yeah. And here's another fascinating thing I learned. I mean, I did this in 2011. I, I will sometimes remember something kind of randomly, uh-huh. maybe something remind. I don't know. It's either unbidden. That is, it's not prompted memory. It just occurs to me. And then I will go back into it to see if I wrote that down in 2011. Ah. And oftentimes I didn't. <laughs> yeah, it's all still swirling around up there. So, yeah, like there's more up there. Yeah, and it keeps recreating itself, right? Our memory isn't yeah. static. It's it's always yeah. like moving into new, new types of storytelling. Yeah, I just so that this is really what I remembered uh, during the fall of 2011. Yeah, <laughs> it would be entirely different today. That's <laughs> funny. I'm a different person. Exactly. Yeah. You're but not the up, same person. It's, it's up there somewhere. I, I can't access it, but it's up there. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, well, I, I have a novel that I, I guess I, whatever, I've been writing it for five or six years, maybe, maybe seven. Anyway, I haven't, not the whole time, but um, I recently, I haven't found like an agent or a publisher for it yet. And, um, but I was re- re- rereading it and I said, I need to publish this really soon because the person who wrote this doesn't really exist in the right. world anymore. And I've moved on right. beyond that. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I look at things that I wrote a long time ago and I just don't, I don't recognize that person. Yeah. And like, how did I do that? What, what was I thinking when I wrote that? Yeah. I, I just don't know. Yeah. I, I was a different person. Yeah. And, and that that's fascinating in itself. It is. Yeah. Especially, especially if it's something you're sizing up to put into the world, you know, if you want to publish it, it's, I find yeah. it very hard to publish something that I don't feel that type of mirror, you know, with. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I agree completely. Yeah, that's right. So anyway, hundred word stories, I highly recommend all the listeners go and check that out. Cool. And l- let's move on to the book then, All the Comfort Sin Can Provide. Yeah. That's a very evocative title, man. <laughs> like there's hardly a, I've, that's a good one. How did you get that title? Thank you. You know, it was a, a random phrase in a story and my friend Pamela Painter uh, read the story and she underlined it and she said, if you ever do a collection, you should make this the title. So it largely came through her, her randomly, but I thought it was, uh, it fit so many of my stories um, as well, because I think there's a, there's a question embedded in that is, is does sin provide comfort? And if it does, how much does it provide? You know, is it worth it? What are the consequences? So I, right. so well, I liked it for that level. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about sin. That that it, it usually is interpreted in a kind of Judeo-Christian context. What what do you mean by it, or can you actually describe what you, you know? Mean by that's it? that's what's been a little bit tough about talking about the book, which which I sometimes don't like to do a lot of. But you know, because I because sin is a loaded word, and and people do think of it oftentimes as as purely in its kind of religious framework, and I think that that is that plays a part in the book. But I I think there's also just a kind of general sense of misbehaving, you know, like what, what does it mean to misbehave? Uh, what are our societal conventions, you know, which, which are, have a, a form of kind of, you know, a, of a religious framework of what's, what's permissible and what isn't. And so I think it's really, um, about people 
transgressing norms or transgress or misbehaving um, in search of of finding themselves really. And I think I think sin is a part of becoming, um, but it's it's it creates a lot of mess along the way. Yeah, yeah, no, I I agree with you. One of the most amazing things about humans to me, and I, I don't think I realized this until I was about forty is that we almost always know the right thing to do where right can be defined pretty much in any way you like. It gives the maximal benefit for you or the people you love, or it's in accordance with some uh, code that you like. We almost always know what it is, mm-hmm. but we often don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Cause we're searchers like, uh, Oh gosh, I'm trying to remember this quote. I think it was young that said, um, Every inside of every alcoholic, there's there's a seeker who got on the wrong track, right? So, so that's one way to kind of forgive some of the sinners out there is that they're seeking. Yeah, and and I think many. I'm going to generalize here a little bit. I encourage people to read the book, but almost all of the people in the book are involved in some sort of transgression and are usually suffering for it. Mm-hmm. Um, was that intentional on your part? I, I don't mean to say that these are sort of, um, you know, you're not teaching anything in this book, but could you talk a little bit about that? They're feeling the repercussions of their transgressions. Yeah, I think that that is one thing that just is very random because I, I wrote each of these stories um, actually over the course of many years. I think the earliest oh, one, really? the earliest huh. one comes from the early, the mid 90s. Um, and then all the way up to the present. So it was, they weren't really written originally with, with the idea of kind of fitting under this title. The title came at the end of the process, actually, as, as a unifying theme. Um, but I think it probably uh, speaks to more just a predilection of my own storytelling, you know, to have. Yeah. Are, are, you, are you, I mean, again, I'll go back to Infinite Jest, which is full of people that are really deeply flawed yeah. <laughs> it's, it's part of why i love yeah. it um, are, are you particularly drawn to those kinds of people i mean they are they do if you'll pardon me again for generalizing they do tend to be the most interesting people yeah i think as a fiction writer yeah you don't want your characters to be too nice i get very bored by nice characters so i i want a lot of uh transgression happening and in some ways, since we started out talking about Iowa and how I got to Grinnell, I mean, I think it is part of growing up in Iowa in some ways. I mean, I know, of course, like people around the world um, are drawn to characters like this and exploring that very deeply flawed side of human nature. But, you know, growing up in Iowa, there is this, you know, phrase, Iowa nice, you know, which, right. which is accurate. You know, Iowa has a very a, a culture oriented towards being nice, you know, and being well behaved. Uh, but when I grew up in this little town, it was, it was, I, I heard, I heard the creator of Mad Men. He said he created Mad Men largely um, as if he was looking through the keyhole in the door of his parents, you know, into his parents, like their parties, you know, and, and, and my parents are not responsible for any of the stories in this book, by the way, just put that as a disclaimer, but, but growing up in this small town, it was like uh, looking through a keyhole through this Iowa niceness and seeing a lot of the bad behavior that was happening on underneath things, you know, it was like, invisible but it but it happened and because of the smallness of the town you just heard about things you know and they could be like really really shocking things um and that was what was actually nice as a fiction writer growing up in this small town is that i was just so attuned to to a lot of the messiness of of people trying to find meaning um or excitement in their lives yes uh, your parents the parents party I remember this as an extraordinarily young child. I was very young. Some of my first memories are seeing adults just drunk out of their minds, yeah. acting badly. 
and I couldn't, I kind of couldn't understand it. <laughs> I used to, and my, and my parents, again, they were, they were really wonderful people. They weren't, they weren't doing horrific things in any way, but, but their parties, you know, back then, cause it was the era of big parties and people drank a lot. And I would just hear these, this, these loud crescendos of laughter, you know, as a kid. And then I would, I would traipse down the next morning, Sunday morning, you know, with the hopes of course, that they would sleep in. Cause sometimes they did. And I knew nothing about the, that they were hung over, <laughs> right. um, but I'd, I'd kind of like walk through the, the, the wastes of the party, you know, the ruins and there'd be all sorts of tipped over, you know, yeah. peanut platters and half empty drinks and stuff. But I'd kind of claim the sodas and the peanuts and whatever. And, uh, yeah, it was it was wonderful actually. <laughs> my kids didn't yeah, get that I, so much. Yeah, I mean, in many, in many ways, it was. It really did open my eyes. I, I, I kind of knew them as fully articulated individuals with all of their, you know, virtues and flaws. Yeah. Uh, but those parties were a particular thing I remember. Yeah, uh, me too. That was something. I mean, I remember very well. And I mean, this dates me, but you know, it, in my mother's house, I grew up with my mom. In my mother's household, one for the road meant one for the road. Yeah. I mean, she would make you a drink to go get in your car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, well, my father was a lawyer, and uh, he tells this story of a judge um, who was hearing a, a drunken driving case, and he asked the guy, uh, who was probably a professional in the community, but he said, "Well, how many did, how many drinks do you have?" And he said, "Oh, I had like you know eight or nine beers." And, and the judge was like, "That's not drinking." <laughs> he threw the case yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. So to link two things that you said, one is um, drinking or sobriety, and then Iowa. There is one story that I liked um, about. I'm, I'm I'm not remembering the name of it, but it's about the fellow who is uh, he's in the lumber business. Yeah, and he's he's celebrating his first year of sobriety. And I should say also autobiographically, this is not going to be news to anybody who's listening to me. I am a recovering alcoholic, and I've been sober for twenty years. I don't say that by bragging; I say it because I've just been really lucky. Um, he falls off the wagon, and he meets a, a Lao woman, and then uh, it, some things happen that aren't particularly good. Can you talk a little bit about that story? Yeah, it was. Um... Uh, let me think about how to frame it. Well, one part, the, the woman from Laos, um, when I was growing up in Iowa in the 70s, I think I was 11 or 12, and very, you know, and, and again, Oskaloosa, Iowa was nearly 100% white. And suddenly there were all these uh, Laotian families in town, and no one really explained to me how they got there, why they were there. Um, I befriended um, one boy, Fong, and we, you know, played uh, in, in fifth grade in recess. We didn't have a shared language, but we played and became friends. And anyway, I was, I, I was always very interested by their presence in Iowa. And it turns out that about uh, 3,000 uh, Laotian refugees um, from a particular tribe that I can't remember the name of them now, um, during all of the, the, the war in Southeast Asia, Asia in, the, in the 70s, they were displaced and they wrote... Uh, 30 or so U.S. governors, and the only governor to reply was Robert Ray of Iowa. And so, Iowa nice. <laughs> Iowa nice in motion. <laughs> a, a good Republican from days of yore. Um, yeah. So yeah, they came to live in Iowa. And um, so and, and most of them are still there now. I did some research on them. And so I, I just thought it was interesting to have this. And, and so growing up, you know, I saw the way that they were treated in, in a whole bunch of different ways uh, growing up in the community and how tough that must have been for them them too, uh, just to be dropped out of nowhere into Iowa. Um, 
And so I have one character who, who comes from one of those families and works in the Walmart and she hooks up, um, in, in a, whatever, uh, a, a shady bar in town with this guy, um, who is falling off the wagon. He, and he comes from the pedigree of being a multi-generational wealth within the context of the small town, the family who owns the lumber yard. And so there are those, those families in those small towns that are kind of like royalty, you know, they're, they're, they they sure. they go from generation to generation, and they're the ones who are in court and having their DUI cases thrown out. So, um, as I told the story earlier, so they they largely live. You know, you can live if you're of a certain like rank in the in a small town, a certain level of wealth, you can get away with a lot. You're going to know the judge. You know you're the gonna judge. You're going to know somebody who knows the judge. Exactly. And so I was interested in that character because of his, because he could, he learned a pattern of life where he could do things and he knew he could get away with them. And so by throwing him in with this woman and um, him having an affair with her and sliding into more and more drinking. And then in the end, I don't know if I should give away the end or not. Should I, Marshall? Yeah, she. Yeah, I think it's important. Yeah, so I mean, it, the, I think this. I, I won't tell everything that happens in the scene because I do think the kind of like some of the smaller details matter a lot. But he, they have an argument. He shoves her out of the car. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's the time of year that winter is approaching. It's kind of like the time of year now, late November probably. And and her coat is in the car, and he he doesn't. As he's driving home, he sees the coat, but he doesn't even think to turn around and give her the coat. And that's going to be, you know, that winter is coming, and a, a snowstorm happens that night. And um, months later, she's found after the snow, you know, uh, melts away. And so, he, and and he does yeah. get away with it. Yeah, yeah. There, there are two things about that story that I'd like to talk about just a little bit. One is the description of him deciding to have a drink after his one year of sobriety. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in AA, we talk a lot about how this happens. There's a vast literature on it in AA and so on and so forth. I thought your description of it was very accurate. Hmm. Like you, you don't really think about doing it. It's kind of in your mind, but then suddenly you're in a bar and you're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost, un it's almost unconscious. And then, you know, the, you take a drink and then the drink takes a drink. I think it's like what you said earlier, right? That we know the right thing to do. Oh, and he knew. Uh, he absolutely knew. Yeah. And then he kind of <laughs> talked himself into the wrong thing with a, we, we're, we're, as humans, we can rationalize things really well, right? We can rationalize yeah, things. Yeah. And then to go back to the, uh, the Laotian woman, this actually happened in Kansas. Um, so in 1978, I was in high school and suddenly all these Vietnamese people showed up. Mm. And I didn't know who they were. And then I learned later they were boat people, essentially. Mm -hmm. They were people that had been brought to Kansas uh, in order to, you know, I mean, they were fleeing, um, essentially, oppression and starvation, yeah, whatever yeah. else they were fleeing. And so suddenly they were in my high school. They were in a segregated part of the high school because they didn't have English and so on and so forth. And I did become friends with one of them. I played soccer with them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that I think people have this impression of the Midwest as being like, totally plain vanilla. Right. You know, it, it just isn't like that. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting to me because I don't remember it being like a teachable moment. Like no one, no one even looked, took a map out and said, here's where Laos is, <laughs> you know? No, nobody did that. No, nobody did and, that. And I'm sure school. the teachers weren't equipped for the situation. And none of the teachers in my town would have been equipped to teach English as a second language. Um, so yeah, it's always the it's always been an interesting story in my mind, um, one that I actually want to do more with. Yeah, and the other thing that you've mentioned it already, but I think it's worth 
uh, pausing for a moment, is that um, he w when he kicks her out of the car, he really doesn't even consider the repercussions of his actions. Like it doesn't occur to him it's that she might be in peril. Like it it doesn't. It, it doesn't even cross his mind. Yeah, I think, and I think that is privilege in action, right? Like he—he's somebody who's always been able to get a ride. You know, he—he—he he, he can call on his cell phone. He can go up and knock on the farmer's door, whatever it is. Uh, but for her, she might not feel so safe doing that. Um, right, and that is—and that is, you know, being from an area like this, that is what you would do. You would be out there in the countryside, and you would see a house. You would walk over the house, and I'd say, "Hi, I'm Marshall. My friend just kicked me out of the car. Can I yeah. get your phone?" Yeah. <laughs> And they'd say, okay, <laughs> but she might not be able to do that. Exactly. And so like, she does die um, in a, in a the, 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 there are questions about what happened, but that is one possible scenario is that she was just too scared to go to the, uh, the, yeah. the farmer's door or, or she expected actually him to have some human decency and goodness and come back for her. Right. Well, that relates to the topic we were talking about earlier. That's one of the virtues of brevity. You don't exactly know what happened yeah um and so you have to fill in the blank i mean i've just filled in the blank in a certain way that might not have been what happened but it might have and so you know it prompts a certain amount of thought and consideration as you run the scenarios through your head like what happened to her what did she try to do yeah so going back to your premise of what the purpose of fiction is to to kind of ponder the truth with the capital t and it's really pondering right it's not finding it um it's it, you're in pursuit of it yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really appreciate it. Uh, we have kind of a traditional final question on the New Books Network, yeah. and that is, what are you working on now? <laughs> I am, well, two things. Uh, one, the the novel I mentioned earlier called The Letters, and it actually grew from um, a series of 100-word stories that I wrote um, that are in my book, Fissures, and they seem to have particularly resonated with readers, and so I took those uh, 20 or so stories about these two characters, Gerard and Celeste, and initially made them into a, a longer short story that's in my next book, All the Comfort Sing Can Provide. And then I, I just became, the deeper I went with them, the more and more intrigued I was with their relationship. And so I wrote a book called The Letters that's largely an epistolary novel, a novel written through mm -hmm. letters uh, written by one of them, uh, but not sent. Um, and there's a whole storyline around that. And so I did finish that um, or have finished it. The thing with writing a novel is you think you've finished it several times, but you haven't. You need to go back and revise <laughs> it again. So it's with an agent right now. And I'm I, actually, I wouldn't mind uh, poking around at it one more time before it but I'm hoping to find a publisher for it. And if not one of the bigger publishers, I'll go to a small press for that. And then um, I did just finish a book called The Art of Brevity, and it's coming out with the University of New Mexico Press in February. So I'm looking forward to doing a lot of uh, publicity and discussions around that. And then what's next beyond that? Uh, I've got a few ideas, but I'm, I'm really in this interlude of searching for what's uh, really speaking to me, uh, because I know I'll you know, need to dedicate at least a year or two to it. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I've I've had a varied career where I I don't seem to be able to do anything for more than about fifteen years, and I'm coming up on fifteen years with the New Books Network, and I I'm kind of getting some ideas about what's next. Oh, cool! Like I I don't 
I, I do have a couple of ideas. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah inklings. But I, have to, I, I, I have to jump off that cliff again, and I've already done it a couple of times. Yeah, but it's so. fun, right? <laughs> it is. It's always it's always an adventure. That's absolutely true. You know, I'm recently inspired by Nancy Pelosi, who who didn't start her political career until she'd raised five kids, and right. and yeah, so that this is amazing. this last it's not even the last chapter. One of the last chapters of life. If, if you view it in 15 year segments. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for, for a few uh, really productive 15-year segments coming up. Well, that's, yeah. that's great. I want to jump yeah, off some more cliffs. And we'll have to talk to you again on the New Books Network. Yeah, you too. I want to hear what's next for you. Okay, great. Thanks very much, Grant. Thank you, Marshall.